We started talking about the divinity of the Torah, namely the eighth principle of the Rambam in the 13 principles of faith. And we stressed that it's not just a question of authorship, but it's more a question of what is the nature of Torah? What is the nature of a corpus that is given to us by God? Last time we spoke about the various dimensions of Torah. We talked about the heavenly Torah that predates this world, a Torah of black fire on top of white fire, and how that's adapted to our world, to our sensibilities, while it maintains its heavenly holiness. What I want to do today is to fundamentally examine the structure of Torah, namely that it was given to us in two formats, a written Torah and an oral Torah, a written text, and an oral tradition. This is also included in the eighth principle of the Torah being divine. The Ram was very clear to tell us that when we talk about the Torah being divine, it's not only about the written Torah being accurate, being from God via Moses. It is also the explanation of Torah, namely the oral Torah, is included in this principle. Of course, we have a lot still in the agenda. We've talked about the proofs of the divinity of the Torah, both for the written Torah and the oral Torah. But I think before we get into that, it's worthwhile to understand a little bit about, about what we mean when we talk about oral Torah. And there's some basic questions hopefully we got to today, and there's further elaborations that we'll need to do in the coming sessions. So first of all, we want to ask a basic question. What is the oral Torah? What is it comprised of? Why is it written, why is Torah conveyed to us in this very unusual fashion? Why do we have this hybrid model of an oral Torah and a written Torah? Why are we overcomplicating things? Let's have it all written down, simplify it for us. And finally, the question of how does Mishnah and Talmud fit into the oral Torah? So I want to unbundle this mystifying subject. But to begin, I want to begin with a general introduction to oral Torah. When you talk about oral Torah today, many people assume, erroneously, that this is the invention of rabbis with some sort of sinister aim. They want to bring about what's called, quote-unquote, rabbinic Judaism. It's not true at all. The way to think about oral Torah is like this. The Almighty has a plan in his world. And that plan is conveyed to us via the corpus of his Torah. And that is the guidelines, that is the manual to achieve the world's purpose, to achieve the world's perfection. But that's a partnership. It's not that the Almighty is going to spoon feed us perfection. It's a partnership between us and God. And therefore, he gives us the Torah, the Torah that was originally in the heavens. He gives it to us, and it's no longer in the heavens, and it's there for us to be able to use its lessons to bring the world to its perfection. And therefore, the most important mission in mankind's history is encapsulated in the Torah, and therefore, to ensure the accuracy, we don't lose what the Almighty's intention is, the most important thing that we need to do is to maintain and perpetuate the Torah accurately. With that framing in mind, how are we supposed to think about Torah? 
I think maybe just a basic question. Let's suppose that God indeed is the author. And the Almighty wants to give us knowledge that we could use to perfect the world. Would we imagine that that book or that corpus would be given to us in the same way that a human would give us knowledge? Of course not. And I think maybe just a basic framework of questioning, if the Almighty wants to give us Torah, he wants to give us Torah in a way that it is perfect. The Almighty is perfect, the Torah is perfect, and the conveyance of the Torah is perfect as well. But he's given it to us, and we're fallible, and we have to perpetuate it. And therefore, I think it's important for us to remember that if it is true as we claim it is, it is not surprising. In fact, it's supremely logical that the way it's going to be conveyed is going to be different. What we know for sure is that humans are woefully inept at creating written documents that are understood by future generations. The best example, of course, of this is the Constitution. Constitution is a document that's maybe a couple of centuries old. It's a relatively new document written in the same language that we still speak today and written by authors with the explicit intention that it's understood by future generations, people who read it in the future. And yet, there is still so much uncertainty, ambiguity, opacity in the words of the Constitution. And therefore, you gotta have, you gotta hire the experts, allegedly, to be able to read it and to be able to decrypt it and to be able to use it as a formula to, un- to understand the constitutionality of, of legislation. And I think this is a great example of the futility of human authorship to produce a solely written document that's understood by humans at a later point in time. Words are somewhat fungible. Their understanding can change. There's inherent bias by the, fir- by the future interpreter. Humans are pretty bad at conveying a corpus of law that is to be later understood by human readers. And again, that's with a document that's a few hundred years old. It's brand new. The Torah. The goal of the divine author, of the divine transmitter, is to produce a document or a corpus that's going to be understood by humans, not just for centuries, but for millennia. How is that going to be done? How is the Almighty going to give us Torah in a way that we're going to understand it and we're able to adapt it to future times, to future, or to changing times, to changing cultures, to changing languages? How is it going to be conveyed accurately for all eternity? The centerpiece of that answer is that it's going to be given to us in an unparalleled format. We're going to have the written text of the written Torah and the oral tradition of the oral Torah, and those two together comprise Torah, and they have mechanisms that ensure that it could be transmitted accurately for centuries and millennia. So again, the the basic introduction that we want to 
begin our immersion into oral Torah is that this is an unparalleled and unique way of conveying information to have two correlated intersecting ways, methods, formats of teaching Torah. Each one of them is a guard against the other. And those two together are the bulletproof way of conveying Torah accurately for all eternity. Now, by way of introduction, another introduction, if you will, I want to read Rambam's introduction to Mishnah. This in general is a fantastic resource if we want to understand the, the structure of Torah, the structure of Mishnah, and Talmud. It's a fantastic essay, a treatise on Torah, the Rambam's introduction to Mishnah. And he kind of lays out what oral Torah is in general. And he says like this, you should know that every mitzvah that the Almighty gave to Moshe, he gave it also with its understanding. So he gave him the verse, the text of the written Torah, together with understanding of the oral Torah. And then when Moshe conveyed that to the nation, of course, the majority of the Torah takes place between the Exodus and the death of Moshe during those 40 years. And what's happening? Moshe is teaching Torah to the Jewish people. Where does he get the Torah from? The Almighty tells him, and he relates that to the nation. The most common verse in the Torah is that the Almighty tells Moshe, by the Hashem el Moshe, the Almighty conveys a message to Moshe to go tell it over to the Jewish people. How was that done? So he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells the book of, of Ervin, page 54b. Moshe receives the divine prophecy from God, and now it's time to teach the nation. So he doesn't call in the entire nation. He calls in one man, Aaron. Second in command. And he teaches him what the Almighty tells him. He tells him the verse, the text of the verse, and the application of that. And he teaches him all the laws related to that particular law. And then Aaron sits down to his right. And Aaron's two sons walk in, and they're the next level of leadership. And the same thing happens. Moshe teaches them the verse and teaches them the explanation and all the various laws. And of course, Aaron's heard it once before. Now Aaron hears it a second time, and his sons hear it for the first time. And then they sit to his left. And then all the elders of the Jewish people, all the leaders, all the judges, they all assemble in, and Moshe teaches it to them again. And Aaron's now hearing it for the third time, and his sons for the second time, and they're hearing it for the first time, and again, the, the verse, and all the laws, and all the applications of the law. And then who walks into the room? All of Israel. And Moshe again teaches all of Israel, the verse, the laws, and the details. And now Aaron's heard it four times from Moses. And his sons have heard it three times from Moses. And the elders have heard it twice from Moses, and the whole nation's heard it once from Moses. And then Moses gets up and leaves the room. But the Torah does not stop. Now it's not Moshe who's teaching it to the nation. Now it is Aaron who's now perfected it. He's heard the same message four times. He has been qualified to teach the nation. And he teaches it once to the whole nation. And then he leaves. And then his two sons teach it once to the nation. And then they leave. And the elders teach it once again to the nation. And then the entire nation has heard 
the same message four times. Aaron's heard it four times from Moshe. Aaron's sons have heard it three times from Moshe, once from Aaron. The elders have heard it twice from Moshe, once from Aaron, once from Aaron's sons. And the entire nation has heard it once from Moshe, once from Aaron, once from Aaron's sons, and once from the elders. This is the way every single law in the Torah was conveyed. The Almighty to Moshe, and Moshe in this tiered fashion, first to Aaron, Aaron's sons, the elders, and then the whole nation, and then each one of those successive teachers teach it on forward. And then what happens? Then the nation disperses, but they go study with each other, and they go clarify for each other. And they all take down notes. This is an idea that we'll see throughout our study of of oral Torah. That doesn't mean that nothing was written down. It means that nothing was canonized. Nothing was formulized as the authoritative text of oral Torah until the Mishnah was written down many hundreds of years after it was originally given to us. Very important to note. But the Ram says that explicitly. Everyone takes notes, but that's their own personal notes. It's not the authoritative, canonized text of the Oral Torah. And all these elders, and all these teachers, and all these judges, they fan out, they spread out amongst the the whole nation to teach, to clarify, to instruct, to make sure that everyone knows the laws perfectly. And that's the way it continued for 40 years. Moshe got all the laws from God. And then he's conveying it to them over the course of these 40 years. And he's repeating himself at the end of his life. He's going to give the entire recapitulation of the Torah. And that, of course, is primarily told to us in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, there's a few very interesting points here. The Torah is being taught to us not once, not twice, four times. Why? And, of course, the answer is it's very important. We have to know it. And we are liable to forget. We are fallible. And it's important to be precise. And this is the idea. The Almighty is giving us a perfect Torah, but we are imperfect. And we have to compensate for our imperfections, for our fallibility, by doing it multiple times, by doing it in this very rigorous fashion to make sure everyone knows the laws. And it's also being taught to us by different people. The entire nation, they hear it once from Moshe, once from Aaron, once from the sons, and once from the elders, and then they study with their friends. Maybe there's a benefit to that as well. Not every person connects to every teacher. And therefore, every Jew is given the option, so to speak, of personally connecting to whatever teacher they really feel resonates with them. Again, this important idea that every person has to have a connection with Torah, it's too vital to allow some people to fall through the cracks. And everyone also hears it from Moshe. Maybe Moshe was beyond all the individuals. But you know what? Every single person heard it at least once from Moshe because Moshe is this direct link to them and God. Now, I also found it interesting Moshe teaches it four times, and the Talmud tells us that he leaves. He leaves the room before Aaron starts. And maybe you could have argued that, hey, 
Shouldn't Moshe stay in to hear, to hear Aaron, to oversee him, to look over his shoulder, to make sure he's saying it correctly? Why does Moshe leave before Aaron begins? Why does Aaron leave before his sons begin? And so forth. And I think this shows us the nature of oral Torah. Torah is being given to us. We're fallible. And not every generation is going to have its Moses. We're going to have to rely on people who are less talented than Moshe, who are less capable, less gifted than Moshe. And that is baked into the very beginning of the transmission of oral Torah. It has to become so resistant to being broken down that even when it's not in the hands of Moshe and Aaron and his sons and the elders, and it goes on to Joshua, to the rest of history, the system itself is so strong it can withstand even instances where we don't have leaders of the same caliber as Moshe. The Talmud goes on to tell a story of the great Rabbi Preda. Rabbi Preda was one of the legends of the Talmud because of this story. He had a student who was very slow. Didn't understand it. Everything had to be told to him multiple times. How many times? 400 times. You did it 399 times, kid still does not get it. And the rabbi, the teacher, and the student, they have the tenacity, they have the wherewithal, they have the commitment to go over the same teaching over and over and over again, 400 times every day, until the kid finally gets it. And the Talmud tells a story that there was one day that the great rabbi, Rabbi Prada, has some visitors. And the visitors are there that have something very important they need to discuss with the rabbi. So he says to them, okay, you guys wait on the side. I have some business to, to attend to. I have to teach my student 400 times. I'll see you soon. So the delegation is there. They're waiting for the rabbi to finish the teaching. And it's been 400 times. And everyone's probably still sweating. Okay, we've done this. We were finished 400 times. And the kid says, I don't get it. And the rabbi tells him, every day we do 400 times and you finally get it. What changed today? He says, well, look at that, those delegations. They're making me too nervous. I'm worried that they're, they're going to interrupt, they're going to disrupt, and they're going to disturb us. I can't fully concentrate. So he tells him, okay, we're going to do this again. And I promise you, I'm not going to let them disturb us. And they do it another 400 times. It's been 800 times. And finally, the kid gets it. The Talmud concludes that in heaven, they were so amazed by the story that they appear to Rabbi Prada. They tell him, you have a choice. The reward, you get a reward for what you did. But you have a choice. Do you want 400 years of life? Or do you want to ensure that every person in your generation is going to merit eternity? Merit a place in the afterlife. So what does he say? I want everyone to merit a portion of the afterlife. He took one for the team. And therefore in heaven, he says, you know what? Because he's so selfless, we're going to give him both. That's what, the, that's what the Talmud says. Now, why is this story juxtaposed to the teaching of Moshe? It's the very next thing that appears in the Talmud. I think the answer is obvious. This is the format of oral Torah. It didn't end with Moshe. It continues every generation. Every generation, the teacher, 
has students and the students need to learn. And the teacher studied from his teacher and going back all the way to Moshe. And that has to be continued. That's still being perpetuated until this very day. And again, it shows us what is demanded, what's even expected of us. It's expected of us to make this a priority because it is the number one priority of our lives to continue Torah, keep it going to the next generation. And what if it takes 400 students? Rabbi Perry could have said, you know what? There's a lot of very talented students. I'm going to focus on them exclusively. This one could fall through the cracks. Oh, no. Moshe taught us, Rabbi Prater teaches us that this is the collective national mission of the Jewish people and no child is going to be left behind. Back to the Rambam. The Rambam again tells us that every law, when it was given by God to Moses, it was conveyed to the people in this fashion. Give us an example. The verse tells us in Leviticus 23, we'll read it soon, you should sit in a sukkah for seven days. During the festival of Sukkot, we sit in the sukkah for seven days. This week's Parsha. Okay, that's what the verse says. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we have to sit in a sukkah for seven days. What a sukkah is, what it looks like, what's composed of, how tall it should be, how short it should be, all that is not included in the actual text. That important information is going to be conveyed to the Jewish people, but that's part of the other ma- other method of, of conveyance, namely the oral Torah. So that, both of them were given to Moshe, and both of them are conveyed to the nation. And finally, at the end of Moshe's life, starting 37 days before he passes, the first day of the month of Shvat, Moshe gathers the nation and he says, I'm about to pass. Everyone who heard a law from me and it's not clear, now's the time to clarify it. Come to me and I'll explain it to you. And he quotes the verse in the fifth verse of the book of Deuteronomy, Ho'il Moshe bears a Torah. Moshe began to clarify the Torah. It's been a long 40 years. A lot of laws have been conveyed. Now it's time to make sure to polish up, make sure that we got it all accurately. Whoever forgot a law, come, we'll remind it to you. Whoever doesn't understand it clearly, come and we will explain it to you. And then, immediately prior to his passing, he starts writing Torah scrolls. And all those verses that he mentioned, orally, he's now going to write them down in the actual text. He writes 13 copies of the Torah scrolls, he has one to each tribe, and one is harbored in the Holy of Holies and is governed by the tribe of Levi. And these are the finalized text of the written Torah that's going to accompany the Jewish people with their study of the old tradition from thenceforth. And then the Ramu concludes this bit, this section, that even after Moshe passes, the same mode of transmission is going to be continued. And then he adds a very important point. There's also mechanisms in place to ensure that we can still study Torah and still have a dynamic tradition even after Moshe passes. That's the basic introduction the Ram gives us to oral Torah. And again, what this reveals to us is that the oral Torah and the written Torah are not discrete, separate entities. 
they are part of the same transmission. When God gives Moshe the Torah, it gives him the written text and the oral tradition. And when Moshe conveys that, he does it also in tandem. And if we experience a little bit of Talmud, we'll see exactly how this works. And we'll see how this unique method is designed to be able to withstand a lot of, of upheaval and tumult. The Talmud sometimes says, okay, here's a law. And the most common question the Talmud says, well, how do we know that? What's the source? Where is the verse in the written Torah that proves that, or that, that sources, that underpins this law and this tradition that you have from the oral Torah? And then, Conversely, we have the exact opposite question, which also appears on every page of Talmud. Almost. It appears very frequently in Talmud. The Talmud will bring a verse. And the Talmud will say, okay, this verse, what does it teach us? What are the laws that we can derive and deduce from this verse? If you were to ask the question, what is the starting point? What is the launching point? Is it a law? And we ask where the verse is. Or is it a verse? And we ask what the law is. The Talmud doesn't have an answer to that question. Sometimes it does like this, and sometimes it does like that. And the answer is that there is no starting point. It's not like one begets the other or vice versa. They go hand in hand. The laws of the oral Torah can trace their roots back to the written Torah. And there's all kinds of details as to how those connections work. That's more the complex inside baseball of the methods of derivation, how to connect an oral Torah law to a to the very cryptic words of the written Torah. But sometimes the Talmud says, okay, here's the verse. What does it teach us? And sometimes they'll say, okay, here's the law. Where is it deduced? Where is it sourced? Where is the written Torah companion? And what it means is that these are companion teachings that are completely different, but are the same because they're written in different languages. One is in the written format, and one is in the oral format. And counterintuitively, the written Torah is actually more difficult to understand than the oral tradition. And you may say, hey, wait a minute. The oral Torah, there's nothing written down. It's not tangible. The written, it's, it's all there. The answer is, yeah, it's all there, but it's written in an encrypted, encoded fashion and you don't know what you're seeing until you have the oral Torah to decrypt it. But both are conveying the same content in almost opposite formats. You have the encrypted written Torah and the decrypted oral tradition. And I think it's a very important observation to see how these two connect. In my opinion, it's probably the best proof to the divinity of Torah. Just the system of oral Torah, written Torah, and how they interrelate and how they coexist is in itself the obviously the product of a, of a non-human, obviously the product of a divine entity. When you could take one verse of written Torah, for example, Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, when a man shall take a woman, and he shall be with her, and it shall be, he's not happy with her. He finds something that he's, that's distasteful about her. He writes her, uh, a divorce document, he gives it to her in her hand, sends her away from his house, and she goes and marries someone else. That one verse 
One verse, it's, it's one sentence, right? When you look at the oral Torah equivalent of that, you could fill up a whole library. The whole book, the whole Talmudic book and Mishnahic book of Gitin deals with divorce. It's all based on one verse in the oral Torah. You have one verse, and when you flesh it out, you end up with a library. And there are, right now, as we're speaking, there's thousands of people studying this book. And at a minimum, if you're going to study it properly, you'll spend half a year to a year studying it. And by the way, it's not because you're studying it and just repeating the same things. There is an entire universe of oral Torah to this one, one verse of written Torah. This It's just an amazing thing how you have two concurrent Torahs, if you will, the written Torah, the oral Torah, and one of them is so tightly written that you see it, you don't even see – you don't see any of the glistening joy of Torah. It's just a kind of a dry verse. And then once you apply the prism of the oral Torah upon it, you realize that there's density and there's depth that you could have never contemplated in your life. This idea that, oh, there's four authors that they just put it together in this haphazard fashion. Not four people and not a thousand people could be as brilliant as to write it down with such perfection. Every word, every letter is accounted for. In the oral Torah, every oral Torah tradition can stem its root, can find its root, and sometimes in very complicated ways, back to the written Torah, it's unfathomable depth, and that's even what we're studying at a very superficial level. Now, to just get more detail about what the oral Torah encompasses, I want to quickly run through just a little bit of what that entails. So the Ram tells us, t- tells us that there is a verse, six days or seven days you sit in the sukkah, and then there's some of the laws that relate to it. Practically today, we are in middle of a 2,000-year project of writing down the oral Torah. And why that happened and how that happened, it's a subject for a future discussion, a future episode. But the way the oral Torah today looks, you have the Mishnah, which is the laws, 63 books, And then you have the Talmud, sometimes called the Gemara, which is the explication of those laws of the Mishnah. So you have a book of Gitin in the Mishnah, and you have a book of Gitin in the Talmud, and that is the Mishnah version of it, which is just the laws. And then you have the Talmud, which is the elaboration, explication, all the examples, all the exceptions, how it's actually applied, how the oral Torah and written Torah are connected, that is the Talmud. And again, this is a very rough definition. And then you have what's called the Halacha, which is another component of the oral Torah. Halacha is the practical ways of how to implement those laws, those principles of the oral Torah. And then you have an entire body of Torah called the hidden Torah, sometimes called the Kabbalah, Kabbalistic, mystical nature, the very advanced oral Torah that to a large measure is still today in the oral realm alone. Now, there are some parts of the oral Torah that are not included in the written Torah. So as we know, 
the Torah tells us that every generation, there is a body called the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court, and they are required to make fences around the Torah. And therefore, we have the concept of rabbinic laws and rabbinic edicts. And these are things that do not appear in the written Torah, but were added later on because the rabbis saw it fit, either because of something new that came up, and that would be rabbinic law, or a rabbinic edict or a protection to an existing Torah law. And the best example is the Torah says, don't write on Shabbat. The rabbis say, well, don't handle a pen that could lead you to write on Shabbat. That's a rabbinic edict. There are also around 30 laws that are called halacha lemoshe misinai, which means it's a law that goes all the way, all the way back to, that goes all the way back to Moses at Sinai. And what that means is, is that it is of Sinaitic origin, but it's actually not found in the written Torah in a way that is using all those methods. There's around 30 laws that are included in that. There are seven rabbinic mitzvos, new mitzvos the rabbis invented. Uh, some of them, like, for example, uh, mitzvah Purim, to read the Megillah, to light the menorah. Some of them relate to the times, and some of them are the rabbis' inventions over the course of, the, of, of history, but it's only seven laws, and the majority of rabbinic law is rabbinic edicts. Now, it's important to stress that over the course of our history, we have had various sects that have rejected the Oral Torah. And they've done it for a variety of reasons. Most often it was because they just didn't want to keep Torah. And therefore they say, you know what? We'll just go with the written Torah. And most often, the people that went just with the written Torah actually had to create for themselves their own version of the Oral Torah. Why? Because you read the written Torah and it's evident that you need some explanation. Don't work on Shabbat. If you do, we're going to kill you. Well, what's included? That's not very detailed. Is that up to every court on their own to decide? That's one example of many. Where to fill and where to vote. It's a mitzvah. You got to wear it every day. What does it look like? There's no description. And of course, we know the answers because, well, that's included in the oral tradition. But if you are someone who rejects the rabbi's oral tradition and you actually want to keep the Torah, you have to invent your own oral tradition because that's just the nature of, of the work. You read the Torah, if it is from God or if it is to be implemented in any way, there has to be some more explanation on top of the written word because the written word is not specific enough. Moreover, there are explicit references in the written Torah for the oral tradition. So, for example, in the aftermath of the war with Amalek, God tells Moshe, write this down in a book and speak into the ear of Joshua. Evidently, there's something that Moshe conveyed to Joshua that's important for us to be told about in the written Torah. That's one example. Another example that people commonly bring in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 21, when it talks about slaughtering an animal in a kosher fashion, it says that you have to slaughter an animal in a kosher fashion, 
or else it's not kosher. And do it as I instructed you. The Almighty instructed Moshe how to slaughter an animal kosher fashion. If you look from the first letter of the Torah, the Bays of Beratius, to the final letter of the Torah, the Lamed of Yisrael, you will not find nary a reference to how to slaughter an animal in kosher fashion. As I instructed you, that is incontrovertible evidence in the written Torah that there is another kind of instruction that is not included in the written corpus. Moreover, like we said, it's logical. There's no way to actually have a oral Torah or a written Torah that actually works without an oral Torah. The Talmud tells a great story of Hillel, that he had a prospective convert. Hillel had a lot of very strange interactions with people that asked him strange, made strange requests. There was the one convert, of course, one study all of Torah while balancing on one leg. That was one convert that he had to deal with. But a second convert was someone who says, I want to study Torah, but only the written Torah, not the oral Torah. So this prospective convert went first to Shammai. And Shammai says, get out of here. What are you doing wasting our time? He goes down the block to Hill. Hill says, okay, sure. We'll convert you with those requirements. But you got to read the Torah. You got to read the written Torah, right? So he says, okay, here's the letters of the written Torah. We're going to study four letters today and tomorrow come back for your second, your second test. So he teaches them the letters of the Torah and what's, what sounds they make. Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dal, the first four letters. And the next day he switches it. It's not clear if he switches the order or he switches the sounds, but he switches it. And the guy says to him, wait a minute, yesterday he told me something else. He says, whoa, wait a minute. You're relying on what I said yesterday to understand how to read the Torah? Don't you see you can't even read the written Torah without the oral tradition to know how to read it, to know what the sounds letters make? If you're relying on oral tradition a little bit, just accept the whole thing because it is, of course, legitimate. So again, there's logical reasons for an oral Torah and there's really no practical way of observing the written Torah without an oral tradition, and there are references in the written Torah for the oral tradition, it is clearly a component of Torah. There is also a historical evidence, the truth of, of oral Torah. For example, they found, you know, in Masada, they found the tefillin for the Bar Kokhba revolt. They took that and they compared it to what we have today, identical. They look at the tefillin of, of Yemenites, the Yemenite Jews who are separate from the Jews for millennia. And they have the same tefillin and the same laws and the same Shabbos and the same kosher. And there is, for example, ubiquity in agreement of what the species, the four species are for the sukkah. For the, sukkah. the Torah says, take a really nice fruit, a beautiful fruit. Is that a really nice orange? Is it an apple? Is it a Everyone seems to agree it's a citron. Everyone agrees. There's obviously a tradition that accompanies the written Torah that's been there since the very beginning. So that's a basic introduction to oral Torah. Of course, there's a lot of very important questions to yet answer. A question that I like more than all is the simple question. Just write it all down. Well, what about the many laws? Write that down too. Write everything down. That's the solution people like uh, the most. Just write it all down. Now, of course, now that we've written most of it down, it's too much to read in a lifetime. 
But that's a separate question. It's a good question we have to ask. And there's, a, there's at least 10 answers that I know of to that question as to why it's better to have this dual approach, this hybrid model of written Torah, the fixed written Torah, and the more malleable oral tradition. We also have to talk about how the decision came about and the process of actually writing it down or to begin writing it down. The Torah tells us there's got to be written Torah, oral tradition. Don't write down the oral tradition. Yet, there is a fateful decision to, yes, write down at least parts of the oral tradition. We have to understand why they did that and how they did that and how they continue to do that until today. And of course, it's important to understand, you know, we saw how Moshe taught the Torah to the rest of the Jewish people. But how that was maintained throughout history is also a very important question. How do we transmit such a vast corpus accurately? And what are some of the mechanisms that are in place to ensure the accurate transmission of the written Torah, of the oral Torah? And of course, at the end of it all, we have to get back to the central question of what do we know? What are some of the classical and some of the traditional and some of the new proofs to the fact that the Torah is divine. And again, when we say Torah, we mean written Torah and, of course, oral Torah as well. So again, my email address is rabbiwobajima.com. I look forward to any questions or comments. And I'm happy to open up the floor with any sorts of feedback or questions or comments of any sort.